0: The very first miracle Jesus performed was at a wedding celebration, and when he wanted to teach his disciples about his future return as king over the world, he told a parable about a wedding. I wanted you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut later the other virgins also came saying lord lord open up for us but he answered truly i say to you i do not know you jesus concluded by saying be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour there's a lot i think that we miss in this story because we don't understand what it was like to have a jewish wedding in ancient israel And in ancient Israel, Jewish weddings consisted of three distinct parts. First, there was the contract. Then there was the consummation. And finally, third, there was the celebration. And today we're going to talk about those first two stages because that's what this parable deals with. The contract. Now, that's the very first stage. For us, the contract comes last. And what I mean by that is, you know how, what it's like when you decide to get married. You go down to the uh, county courthouse and you apply for a marriage certificate. And then you have the, uh, c- the, wedding, ce- the wedding ceremony and the celebration afterwards. And only after all of that has ta- taken place is the contract, the, the certificate, signed and turned back in. And so nothing is official with the state at least until it's turned back in. Well, for them, the contract comes first. And there's a, a picture uh, that I want you to see. And it's a legal document. And it was called the Ketubah. Uh, this is actually an ancient Ketubah that was uh, found by archaeologists. And here's what would happen. When a father wanted to find a groom for his daughter or otherwise, when a female of age found a man that she wished to marry, it was her father's responsibility to secure the marriage and this was done by the father of the bride and the groom signing the ketubah now the the katuba it was a legally binding document and its primary purpose was to protect his daughter the father of the bride's daughter she was in a vulnerable position as a woman now why is that so why were women back then in a really vulnerable position well, because let's say after the marriage, for any reason, the man wanted to discard his wife. He wanted to divorce his wife. That, that left her with probably no means on her own to make a living. Uh, she might have to become a beggar in order to survive, or she might have to become a prostitute in order to survive. The ketubah, this contract, gave her some legal protections that set up some rights that she had And the ketubah was never signed by the bride, but it was signed by the father of the bride as well as the groom. And until the bride was married, she was under the control of her own father. In other words, the father of the bride would use his wisdom to look out for the best interests of his daughter. And even with marriages today, Uh, the father typically gives away the daughter you know how it goes the father walks his daughter down the aisle who gives this woman to this man in marriage the father says I do or her mother and I and so he gives his daughter away we still carry that kind of idea in first Corinthians chapter 7 verse 38 uh, it's a very interesting verse we usually read it this way in our minds we think of it this way Someone who does it, who, someone who wants to get married is fine. You know, that's married. if you want to get married, that's fine. But if you don't want to get married, Paul says it's even better. That's not what Paul actually wrote. He said in 1 Corinthians 7, 38, So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. And so you've got to understand from their perspective, the father of the bride is there to protect his daughter. And so there's the signing of the ketubah, this contract. And so the father of the, groom, father of the bride rather, and the groom, they would negotiate the terms of the ketubah, this legal document. There'd be very clear terms set forth. There'd be very clear conditions set forth. There were three things that had to be addressed. Number one, the dowry. The dowry was the money that the groom had to pay the father of the bride. The father of the bride is losing a member of his family. He's losing the possession of of an important member of his family, and so he should be compensated for his loss. So they have to, to negotiate how much the dowry would be. Secondly, there's a thing called the bride price. It's not the dowry. It's a different thing. The bride price is the terms for a cash penalty in case a divorce without cause occurs. And so it would also be paid by the groom, not only if he divorced his bride, but if he were to take on a second wife. If he were to be polygamous, uh, he would have to pay his first wife, his, his rightful bride, this bride price. And uh, by the time of the first century, when Jesus was uh, on the earth, this, this was polygamy was pretty rare. Uh, but nevertheless, a bride price had to be set, and it was usually 50 shekels of silver. And so if the woman found herself divorced for no cause of her own, she knew that she would have coming to her a little bit of insurance, 50 shekels of silver. The third thing that they would negotiate was the bride's estate inventory. This was an accounting of assets that the bride had, cash, land, livestock, businesses, whatever the bride had, these things would come into the ownership of her groom of her new husband and so she would make a contribution to the new family so all of this the dowry the bride price the estate inventory all of it had to be accounted for and it was a pretty large undertaking this was just the signing of the document this was just the legal things that had to be taken care of before they could ever sign the document but once the father of the bride and the groom agreed to all of the terms they signed the document once they signed the document that couple was married at that moment without the ceremony without the consummation without anything else taking place they were legally and officially married this sealed the marriage and the father of the bride and the groom they could sign the ketubah this document without any consent of the bride whatsoever and so the ketubah was always signed in triplicate one copy was given to the father of the bride one copy was given to the groom and his family the third copy was sealed closed and it was filed with the court the court back then was the synagogue and if either side wanted to get a divorce only a judge could go into the synagogue and find the correct document and break the seal in order to read it and make the parties agree to the terms that they had agreed to. And so at this point, once the document is signed, this couple is 100% legally married. After the document was signed, then they would start to get to know each other, the bride and the groom. That's when they would start, in our vernacular, they would start dating. They might not even know each other until that time, but that's when they would start to date it was after they were married but there were there was to be no sexual cohabitation until later they didn't live together in fact this was just stage one of the wedding and we see this dynamic with Joseph and Mary perhaps the most famous couple in all of the Bible Uh, they were betrothed but make no mistake don't don't misunderstand betrothal to be an engagement no they were legally married Uh, they just had not cohabited together they were not with one another but they were legally married and so it was an engagement I mean I knew of a a young lady uh, who she broke off her her wedding about a day or two before the wedding was to take place and boy there was a lot of drama at that situation people and relatives everybody had come in from out of town everyone had bought gifts everything was paid for everything was set up and she backed out and it was very traumatic and uh, she talked to me and I said well at least you did it before the wedding and not after it's better to do it before as painful as it is it's better to do it before than later. And so it was, it was a very traumatic uh, deal, but uh, there was a worse alternative. Joseph and Mary were not simply engaged like you and I think of it, they were literally and legally married. The ketubah had been signed, but they had not yet advanced to the stage of consummation. And so once the ketubah is signed, The only way to get out of it is through a legal divorce. In fact, that's what Joseph wanted to do with Mary. You remember that. When he found out that she was pregnant, he wanted to divorce her. He wanted to keep it quiet. He wanted to maintain her dignity, but he knew the child wasn't hers, or or wasn't his, and so he, uh, he wanted to go through a legal divorce so as not to humiliate her, he wanted to keep it private. And he, of course, changed his mind once someone paid him a visit. And so that's the, that's the Ketubah, very important process. And once that's signed, they're married. Stage two is the consummation. Now, you might think you know about the consummation stage, but you probably don't know about a Jewish consummation because it's a very complicated process. In fact, it is a community event. Don't misunderstand what I mean by that, but this is a very, very... Important stage of the entire process. Now, as I mentioned, once the ketubah is signed, the couple didn't consummate their marriage right away. Why not? Because the groom just signed a document saying he had financial obligations to the father of the bride. And he might need some time to fulfill those financial obligations. There's not going to be any consummation until the dowry is paid. And so, Uh, there's going to be this break in time usually it was no longer than a year but it might last longer for example there were instances many instances where children the ketubah would be signed for children who were not of age they were not ready to be married and so it might be years before they finally grow old enough to where they can consummate the marriage Uh, but that nevertheless those children are legally married And they can't get out of it without a divorce. Also, another example of a big break in time was in Genesis 29. You remember what happened there. Jacob, he went and he met this man Laban. And he had two daughters. One of them was beautiful of face. Had a lovely figure. And he wanted, Jacob wanted to marry her. That was Rachel. The other one scripture describes as having weak eyes I don't know what that means maybe she just had a good personality but whatever it was he wasn't that interested in Leah what did Laban say if you want to marry my daughter Rachel you're going to have to work for me for seven years that's a big dowry but that's what he did he worked for seven years then what did that guy do he tricked Jacob and on the wedding night she had a veil over her face he didn't know that he consummated the wedding with the wrong daughter he wasn't real pleased about it and so uh he went and confronted Laban about it and Laban said oh well in our in our situation the oldest one gets married first if you want Rachel you can have her too just wait until after the week-long celebration of your marriage to Leah and then I'll give you Rachel but by the way that'll cost you another seven years of your life so he did it and so there's a there's a break there between the signing of the ketub the agreement and the consummation now going back to uh uh, to a typical jewish wedding once the groom met his financial obligation to the father of the bride the consummation would commence and like i said it's a very complex event here's what would happen with the consummation stage first the groom had already paid everything and the groom would set a date and he would notify his bride that the consummation is going to occur on this date then the parents of the bride would prepare the bridal suite it would be in their own home it was called the Kuppa. it'd be in their home the father of the bride would inspect the room very carefully make sure that everything was in order and he would send word to the groom that the room is ready and at some point that night, the groom and his companions would begin a journey from the groom's house to the bride's house. And so you have the groom with all of his groomsmen. They're all dressed up, they're all duded up, they're all ready to go. It's late at night, and here they go. They're going to go to the bride's house. And so they're carrying torches. They're blowing a shofar. They are yelling and screaming. It's waking up the whole village. Everyone's excited. Everyone knows what's going on. Tonight's the night the consummation is going to take place. Everyone, it's, it's a big party. So the groom and all of his groomsmen, they're all walking through the village. They're making this great noise. And the friends of the bride, the bridesmaids, well they, knowing that it was this night, it's going to happen at some point this night, they're waiting outside the bride's home. And when they finally hear the shofar going off, they, they hear the yelling, they see the lights off in the distance. Um, they, the bridesmaids, would light their lamps or their torches, and we'll get to that in a minute, and they would go out to meet the groomsman and the groom, and they would all come together back to the bride's house. And once they arrived, the groom alone would enter into the bridal suite and his bride would be waiting for him on the bed to consummate the marriage. Standing in the next room, just outside the bridal suite, would be as many as ten friends of the bride and ten friends of the groom. There would also be other people that would serve as legal witnesses um, they couldn't see what was going on, but they would be witnesses nevertheless that were set up by the parents of both the groom and the bride because this was a community event. Marriage is a community event. It's a legal issue that's going on here. And so it gives us some understanding. All of these people are standing outside the room while the marriage is being consummated in the bridal suite. And it gives us some, a little bit more understanding of John chapter 3, verse 29. And that passage John the Baptist has some disciples. They come up to him they say, Hey John, guess what? That guy Jesus that you baptized, he's out there baptizing people and people are coming to him. What do you think about that? And John the Baptist said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John the Baptist says, I'm not the groom. Jesus is the groom. And he's come for his bride. I'm just the friend who stands outside. And I'm so happy for him. I rejoice for him. That's what John the Baptist is talking about. A brilliant statement by him given to him obviously by the Holy Spirit and so this understanding of what should happen with the consummation gives us a little bit better perspective of Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13 with the parable of the ten virgins now the ten virgins as you might imagine they were they were the bridesmaids and so the bride in this parable everyone knows this except for us because we don't understand this unless we understand the customs the bride is waiting in the bridal suite for her groom to arrive the 10 virgins are waiting outside each of the virgins needed their own lamp the lamps were not used to light the way of the for the groom to come i mean he had his own lamps for that besides if it was just to light the way, then not all ten of them needed it. You know, What do you need? Maybe two or three torches for everyone else to see? No, every single person needed their own lamp. And the lamps were lit to celebrate and announce the marriage. The light is there to make a grand showing. It's there to make a grand arrival. Because all of the attention in the whole town is on the groom this is the groom's moment of glory because he is on his way to take his bride and if you had a lamp that meant you are an official participant trust is being placed in you to help the groom celebrate the taking of his bride but if you were asked to celebrate the marriage with a lamp and something happened that caused you to fail in your responsibility such as not preparing enough oil then you would bring shame upon yourself you are a participant in helping to run the entire wedding ceremony and you would be in trouble legal trouble even now the lamps that we're talking about were in fact torches and there was the custom back then to have torches and so there were these torches they were tightly wrapped cloths attached to long poles and how do you to get an understanding how do you prepare one of these torches well you take some olive oil and you wet the rags very well ahead of time and then this this gets the cloth very flexible it gets the cloth ready to light but you don't want to get so much oil on it that you begin to spill it everywhere and waste this very expensive olive oil Uh, so the trick is to get just enough in the fabric so that it's it's slightly damp and it's ready to receive a lot more oil. Whenever the groom begins to make his appearance, you can put more oil on it, light the torches and be on your way. And so you would take it and you'd soak the the rags and you'd squeeze it out and collect all of the oil and and you'd have extra oil as as well. And so you would then be totally ready. Then when you hear the shofar, you hear the groomsmen shouting, uh, that indicates that the groom is on the way you add that extra oil and you light up the torch. And so in the parable, before the groom starts to make his arrival, we're told that not all of the ten virgins were properly prepared for their duties. Verses 2 through 4 again. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps this wasn't simply a matter of oh my goodness the groom was delayed we didn't know we needed this much oil no they were unprepared totally the five foolish ones were not prepared at all they should have planned for contingencies they knew that he was coming that night and they didn't know when and so they needed to have enough oil the groom's delay made no difference as to whether the virgins were prepared This was simply a failure to plan at all. They were thoughtless. Remember Jesus' teaching about his second coming. There will be people when Jesus returns and the trumpet blares and the shout is made and the groom comes to take his bride. There will be people on that day that will say, We're unprepared. We didn't know it would be today. Well, you should have known. Because he told you. He's coming back so be prepared these five foolish virgins they were absolutely thoughtless and so here we have the bride waiting in the bridal suite for the groom to arrive her bridesmaids were waiting outside verse 5 says now while the bridegroom was delaying they all got drowsy and began to sleep and that's not the worst thing in the world a lot of preachers and teachers will They'll harp on that, not to fall asleep. That's not the point of the parable. That's not whether they fell asleep. Because even the wise ones fell asleep. Okay, it's a long time. They got tired. But finally, the groom and the groomsmen begin to make their arrival. They blow the shofar. They begin shouting. This wakes up the ten virgins, verses 6 and 7. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins, meaning the wise virgins... They rose and trimmed their lamps. So all the virgins jump up, they spring into action. Now it's time to make final preparations for the torches to be lit. If there was a covering on top of the torches, it would have to be removed. And then they double-check to make sure that the cloth is securely fixed to the stick. And then they put the extra olive oil on and they light the torches. That's what's supposed to happen. But the foolish virgins did not bring extra oil they weren't prepared for the delay verses 8 and 9 the foolish said to the prudent give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out but the prudent said no there will not be enough for us and you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves have you ever wondered why the wise virgins didn't share their oil I mean are they just being stingy is that what's going on no not at all the unwillingness of the wise virgins to share their oil reflects their concern for their friend's wedding in other words they only had enough oil for their own torches if they diminished that by sharing it among everyone then all of the torches would be extinguished too soon the whole procession would be ruined It would be better to have five bridesmaids in the procession than none. And so they didn't share their oil. So what happens? The five foolish virgins, they run off to try to buy olive oil in the middle of the night. Good luck with that. Verse 10 says, And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. So what's not said is that he joins the bride in the bridal suite. In an outside room, there's a celebration of the best man, the groomsmen, the five wise virgins, the witnesses, everyone is celebrating. And once the marriage is consummated, the entire wedding party make their way from the bride's house, her parents' house, to the groom's house because that will begin stage three which is the celebration in fact it's a week long celebration verse 10 says those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut all of those who are ready his friends the witnesses the parents of the bride they all go together to the groom's house and they begin the celebration and the door was shut now an ancient jewish wedding celebration was incredible if you want to get just a glimpse of what it would be like get on youtube today and just look for a video for a jewish wedding celebration it is an absolute blast people are having fun and back then it's much like today i mean the receptions that we have last a few hours Uh, it's it's nothing we should be ashamed of ourselves the the receptions they have it's a week-long party people come and go there's dancing there's celebration there's reading of scripture there's praying there's there's joy there's there's people uh, throwing one another up on tables up and down it's just a it's an amazing event Missing, though, from this celebration in the parable are the five foolish virgins. These girls are running all over town desperately waking, people, waking merchants up asking to buy more olive oil. We don't know if the five foolish virgins ever got their olive oil. It doesn't matter. They missed the entire procession to the groom's house. Verses 11 and 12. Later, the other virgins, the foolish ones, also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Why didn't the groom let the five foolish virgins in? Well, it wasn't that the the bar securing the door was too heavy to lift no people would be coming and going all week and it's not because we should take that literally that the groom didn't know who they were he knew who they were the five foolish virgins they still consider themselves part of the wedding party the groom doesn't they're no longer a part You see, to celebrate in a friend's wedding back then, and even today, but even more so back then, it was a great honor. And as virgins, these young women were, in a sense, practicing for their own impending wedding someday. But the foolish virgins, they insulted the groom by failing to be ready for their role. They had one thing to do and they didn't do it this was an offense that they would never be allowed to forget and when they were ready to get married you could absolutely guarantee that they would be repaid by the groom his bride and probably many other people in the community with resounding silence They made a grave error in judgment. So when the groom said, truly I say to you, I do not know you, he was severing their relationship. I don't know you. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, be on the alert then. For you do not know the day nor the hour. What does that mean, to be on the alert? What does it mean? Some of your translations say, watch then watch what's it mean to watch what's it mean to be on the alert here's what it means it means to have a spiritual quality in you at all times that you are ready for the lord's return that you're ready for the lord's return and it does not matter when the lord comes back that's god's business not ours Even if the Lord said I will be back on this particular day on that particular year even if he told us the day and the year that he would be back even if he told us that there would be foolish people who would not be ready because it has nothing to do when the groom comes it has to do whether we're wise or whether we're foolish. Foolish people would not be any more ready than the foolish virgins who prepared failed to prepare when they would know, and they knew the night the groom was coming. So how do you prepare for Christ's coming? Here's how you do it. Ask Christians, how do you do it? obviously the first step in being prepared for Christ's coming is to be saved and to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior to submit to him as Lord and to follow him as his disciple but beyond that as Christians how can we be ready we can be ready by being as a lamp supplied with the oil of good works we can be a light for all to see and to celebrate. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light Shine. How? Through your good works. Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of of my father who is in heaven will enter let me rephrase that let me reemphasize something not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does it's not about what you say you are it's about what you do He continued, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want to ask you today, how is your oil? How are your good works? When the shofar sounds, and the shout is heard will you be found ready for the groom's arrival are you serving God today are you behaving in such a way as if he were to come today he would find you working and serving him are you obeying God Jesus said it is he who does the will of my father